HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. Today's program is brought to you by Kane Vineyard and Winery, a Napa Valley winery committed to respecting the soil and dedicated to the creation of three Cabernet blends. For more information, visit Kane5.com. Hi, this is Celia Kutcher, host of Animal Instinct, and you are listening to Heritage Radio Network, broadcasting live from Bushwick, Brooklyn. If you like this program, visit heritageradionetwork.org for thousands more. everyone, and welcome to Eating Matters, where we talk about food policy and how it impacts all of us. I'm your host, Kim Kessler, with the Resnick Program for Food Law and Policy at UCLA's School of Law, and we are broadcasting live from Roberta's in Bushwick, Brooklyn, on Heritage Radio Network. Today will be our third show in our series on prescribing food, and we're talking about the connection between food and health care. And joining me to discuss this will be two people who have been deeply involved in this topic throughout their careers, Dr. Deborah Frank the director of the Grow Clinic for Children at Boston Medical Center and a professor in child health and well-being at Boston University, and Lachman Hiralal, the manager of the Preventative Food Pantry at the Boston Medical Center, a first-of-its-kind food pantry which was founded in 2001. I'm very pleased to have them both here, and welcome to both of you. Thank you. Thank you. So, Dr. Frank, I'd love to start with you. What first got you interested in the issue of child development and nutrition? Well, I, I did a uh, fellowship with Dr. T. Barry Brazelton um, and uh, real, real, in child development and realized that poor nutrition was one of the preventable and treatable causes of um, uh, learning and behavioral difficulties and uh, also realized that what we call failure to thrive in this country is called malnutrition in the rest of the world. And what, what, what does that mean? Uh, what do you mean by that linguistic difference, or why do, why do you think we have it? Well, failure to thrive is an archaic term, which is a kind of mother-blaming. The, the subtext was that um, mothers, they did, people didn't even realize it was nutritional. They thought it was uh, lack of love coming from bad mothers that made children not grow. Um, and this turns out to be nonsense. Uh, there are p- plenty of children whose mothers love them a lot who um, uh, have, uh, you know, difficulty getting enough of the right kind of food for their health. 
um, in the developing world, they were much clearer on what the primary cause was of the children's growth failure. And so this, I guess, led you to your work with the Grove Clinic, which is now, which you are now the director of. And what, the founder. what is the focus, the founder and director of, uh, and what is the focus of, of the efforts there? Well, we depend heavily on philanthropy, but with that we are able to provide uh, comprehensive multidisciplinary care, including nutrition, social work, um, developmental assessment, backup mental health if we need it, um, for for low-income families with very young children whose children um, are not growing well and whose condition is uh, too serious for their primary health care provider to deal with alone. And infant malnutrition and nutrition deficiency, as you've referenced, isn't something that we hear a tremendous amount about in this country. In your experience as a practitioner, how extensive is the issue? Well, I think it depends where you look. If you look at the country as a whole, it may not be that common. But if you look in low-income communities, for example, in our, I have also the founder of another project called Children's Health Watch, uh, www.childrenshealthwatch.org, where we do what's called surveillance uh, in the emergency room here uh, and in several other pediatric settings around the country. And uh, the rates of underweight in the young children under four coming to this emergency room um, is about 15%. So uh, it, it, it is um, unfortunately way too common uh, in uh, impoverished communities. And uh, there is a... Um, um, uh, uh, it, it's uh, it, it is it, it, the way that one of the ways that ill health and educational difficulties is transmitted uh, with from generation to generation, starting in the womb, actually with mother's poor nutrition in the womb, um, and so it's an absolutely. What you mean by that is that the, the these children start out at such a disadvantage that it's difficult for them to overcome and, and therefore their disadvantages. Well, if, they, if, not, if they're not treated and, right. if the, and, if the, and they're without intervention, it's not dramatic, but it's sort of chronic, eroding um, deprivation that actually uh, alters the myelination of the brain and the neurotransmitters. Um, that means that it's, uh, it, it's very difficult by the time kids get to school age um, for them uh, uh, to learn easily. It doesn't mean they can't learn, but they require a lot of extra effort. It's like I always explain it to young people like it's like a computer that's easy to program or a computer that's hard to program. Mm -hmm. You can program both of them, but it's a lot more effortful uh, if... Uh, the computer didn't get constructed right because in early life people did not get enough of the right kind of food. So before we talk about the fan, the food pantry, um, is, I, I'm interested to understand how the referral process works or how you identify this issue. And if you look primarily for underweight 
um, or if there are other indicia of a child that may not be getting enough, adequate nutrition. Well, certainly anemia is one, and children who are anemic uh, may be any weight. I mean, from underweight to obese, and it's highly prevalent, again, in our hospital for young children. I don't have the number in the, my head, but it's pretty prevalent. And is uh, it something that children are routinely screened for? Yes, um, starting at nine months, because we have such a high rate. Um, the, but, we all, but there is also, the children who are underweight are the final common pathway. There are many children who have, are not, at least, we don't know whether they've lost weight, but they're not underweight, but their families are what we call food insecure. They tell us that they don't always have the resources to have enough uh, uh, food for every family member to have an active and healthy life, and that's a very standard definition uh, measured by uh, the federal government and all kinds of different surveys. Again, in our emergency room, that rate has gone uh, up uh, since the Great Recession so that it's now about one in three of families bringing young children to the emergency room. And is that something that, is it typical? In my experience, one is not screened for that in an emergency room. No, it's, we, we screen as part of the research project. We have re, my colleagues have recently developed something called the Hunger Vital Sign, which we hope will be incorporated at least into, um, if not emergency room settings, uh, into uh, medical records in uh, primary care settings and other places where people have a little more time um, to, because it really is a very important and very treatable. Uh, factor contributing to poor health and poor learning. In your experience, are parents aware of the issue that that it is impacting their children? Well, the, um, they say I always have something in their stomach. You know, I think um, uh, if the child isn't desperately ill, the sort of subtle uh, difficulties you don't recognize as much as if uh, um, just day to day, but they certainly worry about it. Uh, and they say, you know, we have a, a colleague of mine runs a program called Witnesses to Hunger, and um, uh, you know, and one of her uh, participants said, "How do you feed them without giving them harmful stuff?" Mm-hmm. Uh, and you can't. It's very difficult to afford good quality food. There's uh, People manage to scrape together enough to keep children from crying because their stomachs are empty in general. Uh, but, we, for example, we've seen children who are being fed a mixture of cornstarch, sugar, and water um, who don't cry. I mean, they're full. But, mm-hmm. boy, are they uh, ill and underweight and uh, weak. Um, so, uh, again, parents want to make sure their children don't feel hunger. But that's very different than trying, than, um, and they worry that they can't do better than that, but that's kind of for them the bottom line. So uh, turning now to the food pantry, I know that you first started it uh, even many years before its formal launch in 2001 as an informal service really in your office. What made you take it to the next level and do the work to, to create a, um, a broader institutional program? Mm-hmm. Um, well, that happened when what was the city hospital where I was working merged with the university hospital, and 
the hospital realized, the new hospital realized that this was a crucial issue to their great credit, uh, already I was feeling incredibly frustrated because my pediatric colleagues were saying to me, why do we have to wait until a child is malnourished before we can offer food? And the security guards were doing things like sending me pregnant ladies um, who were hungry, um, even though you know my, uh, they were, you know, they weren't my patients. But we could hardly turn knew, people away because they knew that you had peanut butter in your office. Kind right, of thing. exactly. And um, we could, we could, we, we could barely, we, you know, we kept saying we can, we can barely keep up with our, you know, the kids in our clinic and the people who wander in who aren't supposed to. Um, and uh, and then, of course, you know, I, I'm very mother-child focused, but it's, a, it's an issue not just for uh, uh, pregnant women and young children, but for elderly and all sorts of people. Uh, and the scope, you know, it was really right that the scope was just greatly broadened, and it was also highly professionalized. I think Latchman can tell you about that. I mean, the way we used to do it is we used to, you know, uh, beg around churches and uh, synagogues, and then there'd be a delivery, and we'd all leap up from our computers and uh, go down this creaky elevator and unload the food and bring it up. And then whenever we had a quiet minute from, you know, doctoring people, we would sort it. And, you know, one room was baby. My room was baby food because my room locked. Mm-hmm. And baby food and formula are precious items. And then, like, the social worker's room was mac and cheese. And we stored it all in um, rubber garbage bins. We didn't have anything, you know, more professional. It really paints the picture of how you got started. One of the things that comes to mind as you're talking is I think a lot of um, I think a lot of folks believe we have a good um, a good social safety net in terms of food security, and particularly for kids, because especially of the women of the of the WIC program, Women, Infants, and Children program, which is so widely used in our country. What is your sense of um, how that program fails the kids that you are taking care well, of? Well, I think both WIC and SNAP are, are wonderful programs, but to use a medical analogy, and uh, and WIC is uh, very medical. The, the, the food that it is offered is tailored to uh, nutrients that are inadequate in low-income diets for women and children. It's only $30 worth of food a month, or not much more than that. Um, and but the problem for both of those programs is not that it's not good medicine, but that the dose is too low. And uh, so, uh, and then with SNAP, well, there's there's you know all kinds of other complications and barriers and documentations. Um, so, so, many, it, so oftentimes you would have patients who are participating, but they're still not able to meet the needs of everyone. In well, particularly in places with very high food costs. Mm-hmm. Uh, which Massachusetts is, um, but we have done a study here that you know if you if you got the full on SNAP got the full thrifty food plan, which is the government's definition of a minimally adequate diet for short term use. That is nevertheless what the be- the maximum benefit is tied to. It's not um, you would still be you could not buy that in Massachusetts without an additional several thousand dollars. Uh, if you got because SNAP benefits are national, and right, so and they, they don't have any sort of geographic uh, only for like Alaska and Hawaii. Right. Um, so um, 
you know, they may be marginally adequate in some places and completely inadequate in others. So I, I know that you talked about how professionalized the pantry is, and one thing about it that's unusual is that it has a formal prescription-based approach in which healthcare providers actually write prescriptions for their clients to go to the pantry. So how does that work, and was there any institutional pushback to it in the sense of doctors feeling like this is unorthodox and I'm not sure? Oh, right? no, people were, people were delighted, including the surgeons, uh, who you wouldn't think to be... Uh, uh, Peter Burke, who was one of the real heroes of the um, Marathon Bombing Day, he's a, now sort of our senior surgeon. But you know, 14 years ago, he wasn't. A, he was, you know, just a surgeon, and he was part of the founding group. Um, and uh, it, it, it's very easy. It's probably um, it's in our electronic medical record, and we just do a couple of clicks and print it out and people take it down to the pantry. And, you know, in medicine it's taught that it's um, unethical to screen for what you cannot treat. And so people were sort of avoiding even asking about the problem. Oh, I hope that's Lachman. Um, uh, uh, because they felt so helpless that there was nothing they could do about it. Which, is, which would be typical for most doctors or many doctors today across the country. Right. In fact, it's when, when some of my students and people I've had as interns and residents go off to other hospitals, they contact me very upset because uh, they are so conscious of the problem and where they are now, there's nothing they can do about it. Um, so uh, it's, uh, you know, it, re- it really is a, a huge issue. The, Lachman, were you able to? Is that, were you able to rejoin us? It doesn't sound like it. So, um, Dr. Frank, what I'd like to do is take a short break, and then we'll come back and talk a little bit more about your work. Sure. Listening to Knife Show, and this is Eating Matters on HeritageRadioNetwork.org. This is Chris Howell from Cane Vineyard and Winery, calling in from Spring Mountain above the Napa Valley. Thank you for listening to this show. In our industrial world of highly processed food and wine, we support the values of Heritage Radio Network. All of us at Kane encourage you to seek out individuality and beauty in everything you eat and drink. To learn more about us, go to Kane5.com. Back in Eating Matters, I'm Kim Kessley, your host, and today we're talking with Dr. Deborah Frank, who's the director and founder of the Grow Clinic at Boston Medical Center and one of the driving forces behind the uh, Boston Medical Center's preventative food pantry. So, Dr. Frank, um, I wanted to ask you a little bit more about your patients 
slash pantry clients. Is there? Can you tell us about who the typical clients are? Well, again, I, I can't really tell you about the pantry clients. They come from all over the hospital, uh, including you know elderly, refugee, huge number from family medicine and and just general pediatric clinics uh, and uh, um, obstetric clinic. So, so I, but you, I don't have the numbers of my refer- huh? right. So you make referrals out of your own practice area, where whereas right. people are being referred from all across the hospital. Right, and we started out thinking we were going to serve like four hundred people a month, and we serve seven thousand. I mean, it's pretty stunning. Um, the level of need. Um, so and do you know, and you know, you were talking before the break about how um, this resource is really valued by the medical doctors in your hospital because it gives them a tool to address this issue that comes up in their treatment of patients. Given that, do you know uh, if this is something that has been replicated widely across the country? Not widely, but people are working on it. um, Hennepin County in Minneapolis is is doing it. Um, uh, Children's Hospital of Arkansas would love to do it, but they haven't quite got it off the ground yet. Um, a number of our neighborhood health centers kind of have under-the-desk pantries also. Um, but I don't think anything quite on the sort of professional scale that we have um, because, again, it depends extremely heavily on philanthropy. And uh, it's important to remember that the whole emergency food assistance network, not just, you know, in a pantry in the hospital, but everything, all the food banks, all the soup kitchens, all the backpack programs, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, only provide about 10% of the need. And so that if we really want to solve hunger in America, we have to look at policy. And, we, and also the problem with the emergency food assistance system, as, nice, as good as it is, and is that it, is, um, it, it depends where you live. So if you're a patient at Boston Medical Center, uh, and you live in downtown Boston, you have access. If you are a patient out in, you know, uh, Springfield, Mass., you're out of luck. Uh, and if you're in, you know, uh, and so forth, it, 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 um, even within cities, never mind whether they're in hospitals, there is huge variability in whether people have access to the emergency food network at all. And whereas the, uh, you know, the importance, and again, it's just such a, uh, it's such a limited proportion of uh, the programs that meet the need, and those programs people need to be very aware are under attack uh, at the federal level. And so that if we were really, uh, you know, I think it's terrific to have, uh, okay, here, Lutchman, just email me. I think it's terrific to have... um, uh, you know, pantries and hospitals, particularly because we can, you know, have some control over the quality of the food and tailor it to the need of the patient and so on. But it's very expensive uh, and labor-intensive, and we just happen to be very fortunate in having been able to raise the money. Um, here we go. Now, what's this? Right. And when you say that, um, when you say that policy is is, uh, uh, so- I got I got disconnected. While Dr. Frank was on the line is what he emailed me. Oh, he's, he's disconnected now. Okay, so un- unfortunately it sounds like we're not going to be able to get Lachman, who's the actual manager of the pantry, to be able to join and give his perspective okay. today. Um, 
but we'll go on with our conversation with you. You had just referenced policy as being the overall goal that while the pantry networks is a really important piece in terms of getting to the root of hunger problems, we need to look at policy. And are there particular policy shifts or issues that you think would make a real impact on child nutrition? Oh, yeah. Um, first of all, uh, well, let, let's back up. There are, are distal and proximal, meaning far away and close, causes of food insecurity. Distal is economic dislocation, lack of child care, um, very expensive housing, very expensive energy costs. Proximal um, is money uh, targeted to food. Um, and uh, the distal issues um, will take a long time to resolve. The baby's brains are not on that timetable. I mean, a baby brain is growing minute to minute and day to day in young children's brains. So that um, it's not that the only solution to hunger is the proximal one of uh, the nutrition assistance programs, uh, but that the... Um, but they're but critical it, for the people right, that are being impacted. Right, but, but it also, and it also interrupts um, the chain of damage from the distal things to a certain degree. Not fully, but some. Um, so in in terms of um, uh, policy things, first of all, uh, remember that the biggest child nutrition program is SNAP, is food stamps. And that, at the moment, is uh, people are gearing up to attack it, cut it, make it difficult to access it, block grant it, do all sorts of things that ultimately would hurt children, um, as well as fragile elderly and families. So, as many people may not know, it's more than half of SNAP participants are children and elderly. Much more, yeah. Um, and uh, again, you know, children come with parents, and they say, "Well, we'll feed the kid and not the parent." Doesn't really contribute much to the care of the parent of the child. Um, there is then what's called the child nutrition reauthorization, which is coming up this year, which includes the women, infant, children program that you referred to which, again, the, the concern is that people will try to make it less easy of access in a number of ways, including reinstating bureaucratic barriers that were removed, um, uh, and requiring all kinds of duplicatory paperwork and so forth. Um, that also includes school meals, uh, where uh, uh, there's been some real progress in, not only in the quality of school meals, but in what's called community eligibility, meaning rather than running every single child in inner city, or impoverished, rural, wherever, through this complex paperwork, which or run every family, which you know ties up the, the schools, ties up the parents. Kids don't get to eat because a piece of paper is missing. They simply say, if you live in this place where this many families are poor, you just assume you're eligible, and that's been a huge bureaucratic savings. They, people may try to go back on that. The other thing that's very in the the other thing in the child nutrition is the um, child and adult care food program, which is uh, you know is used not only by Head Starts but by all kinds of daycare centers, as well as by congregate meals for adults. But as I'm talking about now for children, 
Right. So every child who's in who's in a child care program, the program can seek reimbursement for the right. But the two have. problems there is the reimbursement's too low, and the paperwork so that there are um, uh, criteria about what you should feed children, but you don't have the resources to do it, which is very hard. It's on you know low income family daycare providers uh, it, it, and who can't purchase in bulk and so forth, but who certainly are one of the important parts of the child care system. Um, and I'm interested to hear from you, as you've been involved in this work for such a long time, how you've seen these issues change. So in the time that you've been focused on child malnutrition, are there major changes in um, the kinds of clients you've seen or the way the issue is presented? Well, the, when I first started talking about this, people were stunned and horrified. And uh, and now it's kind of, yeah, and, or, okay, I'll give some peanut butter the next time the post office comes around. Um, and so people accept as, as part of the background that a huge proportion of, you know, 15% of America's children don't always have enough to eat. I mean, that's extraordinary that people have become so blasé. Uh, and even if you aren't a caring person, if you're a bottom-line person, um, it is extraordinarily costly at all life stages to have people who are not well-nourished. Um, it's been shown in adult diabetes and hypertension and child diabetes. One of my young colleagues is not is been doing research on children with cancer uh, and uh, found that the families that are food insecure, the children even don't do as uh, well with their cancer th- their cancer treatment, which makes sense. I mean, and again, nutrition, you know, food is medicine. Um, and so... In your, in, in your experience, people have, you feel that there is a high level of awareness that there are, there is that extent of child hunger? Well, I think that that certainly, um, I think there should yes, and I but it's either you know blamed on parents or said it's not really real. There's a you know people go around saying there's no hunger in America. Look at our tall basketball players, or look mm-hmm. at people who are fat as though food insecurity didn't have anything to do with obesity. The, the there's well, a lot of. How do you think? How do you think that the the issue, the rise in obesity and diabetes as major public health concerns, has impacted the understanding of domestic hunger, if at all? I think people have a hard time wrapping their head around it, um, that uh, they get it if you show them a picture of a skinny, skinny child, either in this country or abroad. In this country, we don't show a lot of the pictures because we have HIPAA, you know, patient privacy rules. Right. Um, but if they show you a child in a, you know, in a refugee camp overseas, people get it because our children don't sit on the street corners in with no clothes on so we can count their ribs. Um the, in fact, is you walk past many poorly nourished children um, who have, and you don't even know it. You see the round little faces and a child who looks two only, they're four. But you can't tell they're malnourished, certainly not on the street. Um, and then in terms of obesity, the problem is that people have, can get um, enough calories but not enough quality food and low-nutrient-dense, high-sugar foods are not very satisfying. In fact, is they trigger more hunger, but then if all you can afford is, you know, 
uh, soda pop to make yourself feel full, um, you're going to become more obese. And there's a cycle very much like yo-yo dieting. Also, uh, some people often have enough food some days and not enough money for food other days, particularly towards before the paycheck or at the end of the month or if they have a like unexpected car repair bill. Um, and then when food is available, they tend to gorge. Uh, so you have sort of a, a yo-yo dieting uh, phenomenon, and only it's not voluntary. And that all can contribute to malnutrition, you would say? To obesity, yes. Um, so it's really, it's, there is an excess of um, problem at both ends of the size spectrum with increased underweight and increased overweight. Oh, shoot. Um, well, I'm sure I know that um, your time is running out, and you may be you may be fielding another call right now. I just um, turned it off, but I'll have to No, Okay, well, I'll ask you one closing question in that case. Yeah. Um, are there things that you would recommend to audience members that they can do either to raise their own understanding or... Um, or that they should be mindful of if they're concerned about these issues? Well, they can certainly um, log on to the Children's Health Watch website and also www.frac.org, which is the Food Research Action Center, which will keep you very updated. But I think it's really important wherever you live in the country to let your legislative representative know that this is something you care about and that you're watching because the solution is going to be um, uh, policy the, and political at some point. Right, right. I mean, it's great to participate in food drives and donate and volunteer. That's all terrific. But you've got to not just think retail but wholesale. And I, I, I said our listeners, if they're concerned about this issue, but I'm sure that anyone listening is concerned about this issue. So I thank you for that. And I am really... Um, thankful for your time. I'm sorry that, that Latchman that directs the pantry wasn't able to join us, but I appreciate like hearing about both of your work. Mm-hmm. Um, and glad that you could join us for this episode of Eating Matters. Okay. Thank you. Bye-bye. Thanks so much. Thank and I want to thank Tim Archer for our show music. The show is available as a podcast at iTunes and Stitcher and is always available also here on Heritage Radio Network. I'm Kim Kessler, and thank you for listening. Thanks for listening to this program on heritageradionetwork.org. You can find all of our archive programs on our website or as podcasts in the iTunes store by searching Heritage Radio Network. You can like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter at heritage underscore radio. You can email us questions anytime at info at heritageradionetwork.org. Heritage Radio Network is a 501c3 nonprofit. To donate and become a member, visit our website today. Thanks for listening.